Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today's guest is someone that I'm really, really excited to introduce on the show. You know, it's actually really a special guest for me to introduce because Vincent Horn's podcast, Buddhist Geeks, was the first podcast that I really started listening to. It's hard to say which one. I I started listening to Buddhist Geeks and Waking Up with Sam Harris at about the same time, but those two podcasts for me were really the first ones I started listening to, and they're what got me into podcasting. And I, I got into both of them, you know, after they'd started, especially Vinches was established for a long time, and I went back and really binged listened to all the old episodes. And it was a really cool opportunity for me to connect with kind of the larger Dharma community back in the US, which I wasn't connected with at all since I'd been, you know, I'd gotten into Buddhism since I moved to Asia, which had been five years prior at that point. So I learned about a lot about kind of the Buddhist scene in America, the meditation scene in America through that podcast. And it also really made me more aware of the whole Renaissance and psychedelic research that was happening. And it'd be going on for some time because Vince had guests on like Dr. Roland Griffiths from Johns Hopkins. So not to mention, I mean, he really got me into the medium itself and and helped me to get the podcasting. So, you know, Vince is someone who in no small way is really, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now with this show, which has been a source of such great joy for me if I hadn't been listening to Vince's podcast. So it's exciting to have him on especially because we have so many mutual interests that we have to discuss. In particular, over the last year since Vince has launched his podcast again, Buddhist Geeks, because it went dormant for a while, he's done a whole series on meditation and psychedelics. And so he's really explored that connection in depth. And in a lot of ways, he's definitely an ideal guest to speak to concerning the themes of this show, given our interests and how much we've explored that connection on this show. But we don't only talk about meditation and psychedelics. We also talk about sort of his evolution and and Buddhism and meditation in general and how the interest in these practices has evolved in the West over time and how Vince sees the future of that playing out. So it was an absolutely fascinating conversation with a very smart and nice guy. And so... I'm extremely pleased to be introducing you to Vincent Horn. Let me give you a little bit about his bio in case you're not already familiar. So Vincent Horn is part of a new generation of teachers translating age-old wisdom into 21st century code. A computer engineering dropout turned modern monk, Vincent spent his 20s co-founding the groundbreaking project Buddhist Geeks while doing a full year of silent meditation practice on retreat. Vincent began teaching in 2010 and since then has been authorized in both the pragmatic Dharma lineage of Kenneth Folk and by Trudy Goodman Cornfield, whose contemplative training is in the insight meditation and Zen traditions. Vince is one of the co-founders of Meditate.io, which is dedicated to offering deep practice opportunities for independent learners. Vincent has been called, quote, a power player of the mindfulness movement by Wired Magazine. It was honored to be featured in Wired UK's smart list, 50 people who will change the world. He lives in the mountains of Asheville, North Carolina, with his teaching and life partner, Emily, and their son, Xander. Though, as Vince noted towards the end of our conversation, apparently he actually just moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. But 
we had a fascinating talk and we not only share a lot of interest, but, you know, similar lineage of Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism and similar teachers as well with Jack Cornfield. So I had a great time speaking with Vince. I'm sure that you'll enjoy the conversation as well. If you enjoy kind of conversations we normally have on hacking the self and uh, just one final note before I segue to our talk. I would love to hear from you if you're enjoying the show and you have any feedback to share about what you're enjoying or what you might be might want to change or what guests you might like to have on the show. I'm open to constructive criticism and it's always just great to hear from guests as well. So if you are interested in dropping me a line, you can do so at hackingtheself at gmail.com hacking the self Facebook page or at hacking the self on Twitter. Finally, I'd greatly appreciate your support for the show to help get the word out. So if you're willing to share it with friends and family on your social media or any other platforms, we'd be very grateful. And if you've been listening to a few episodes now and you're really enjoying it, I'd ask you to please consider donating even a small amount on patreon.com slash hacking the self. I pay to have the, um, it not only takes, you know, time and energy to produce the show, but I actually have the production part done by a professional podcasting company because I think the audio quality is very important to have, just be at a professional level. And so I want to outsource that to be done by someone who really knows what they're doing. And uh, it also does save me a lot of time, which is very helpful. That said, it, it is costly. It's about $250 a month, and I'm just short of still $200 being off that goal. So even if you give $2 a month, it's it's a huge help. And so I'd be very grateful. I really want to finance the show directly from the listeners and not be accountable at all to advertisers who might in any way, shape, or form attempt to influence the content of the show. I intend to keep it that way, but to do that, getting you know fans help in, in supporting the financing of the show, even just at a really minimal amount, would be very, very helpful. And that said, if you can't support the show financially at this time, I totally understand it. And just glad you're listening and whatever you can do to kind of get the word out and sharing it on social media channels or anything else is, is much appreciated. So Hope you're doing well wherever you are, and I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Vincent Horn. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. I started listening to yours about 2015, 2016, and just kind of binged listened to it and, and kind of went through all the old episodes and, and loved it. So really exciting to finally have you on the show. Nice. My pleasure. Thank you. So I've read a, you know, a bit about your bio and the introduction to the show, and I really would like to focus for most of the show on this idea of the relationship between meditation and psychedelics, because I know you're very interested in this space as well. However, you know, before we get there, you know, I, I thought it might be helpful to just color in a little more context for your background for people. I told them about how you were the host of Buddhist Geeks, you know, and I know you took a little time off of that very successful project and now you're back. It seems like part of the reason from what I've heard of your, your motivations were you had 
become interested in sort of meditation, but necessarily you'd had questions or reservations about doing it within a Buddhist framework. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that and, and tell folks a little bit about where you are right now in your own meditation practice and how you think of yourself. Yeah. I mean, the, the story is that I had been doing Buddhist geeks for about 10 years and had been, I guess, practicing in the Buddhist context for longer than that, maybe 12, 13 years. And so I imagine this happens to people in a lot of different disciplines where, you know, you kind of fall in love with something and give your heart to it and, you know, in a way merge with it, become one with it. It's like, not just I'm interested in this Buddhist teachings and these practices, but like I'm a Buddhist. And so that was very much my relationship to it. And of course, Buddhist geeks as a clear expression of that early relationship, you know, that I had with the Buddhist tradition. I just fell in love with it. I remember going to my first insight meditation retreat up at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And I was just for whatever reason, the imagery and the style of practice, you know, the the long, still silent practice, it, it just resonated with me at, at a level that, you know, that was very heart centered. And I just felt this deep appreciation and love and gratitude that I'd found this thing that seemed to really respond to my deepest questions. And so out of that, you know, I think developed a kind of almost like an obligation to it. You know, it's like when you're in a deep relationship with someone, you feel obligated to them. And and so, you know, over the years, I just I, I maybe found myself in a new place, having really explored that deeply, but also having explored a lot of other things. I mean, I was really passionate about integral theory and moved to Colorado to work for Ken Wilber, who's an integral philosopher and his community. And I got really interested in, you know, different psych psychological techniques and in systems theory and in you know, developmental psychology. And, you know, there, there was a lot of things that I was interested in. And when I looked at my bookshelf, you know, and actually one day counted the, the number of books that were Buddhist, it was something like 30 or 40%. And I realized like, okay, 30, 40%, I'm not actually a Buddhist. <laughs> I mean, if I look just at the statistics, I'm like Buddhist slash, you know, it's the whole Twitter thing, you know, everyone's Twitter profile has this Buddhist dash, you know, integral dash, you know, systems theory, dash, you know, just like there's all these dashes, dashes of identity. And so I just found, yeah, my identity become really multifaceted and Buddhism was an important and even core part of it, but it, it was no longer the center. And so I just felt like I had to give up that, that primary identity. And part of that for me was letting go of Buddhist geeks and teaching through Buddhist geeks, which I'd been doing for a few years, along with my teaching partner and wife, Emily. It was a real process of disillusionment of like letting go and grieving. And I'd say, you know, it took a few years to kind of get to the bottom of that. And then, you know, I hit the bottom and was still studying with Buddhist teachers and reading Buddhist stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm still, some part of me is still a Buddhist geek, but I'm also not a Buddhist anymore in, in the sort of fundamental way. So I started thinking of myself kind of as like a, a Buddhist, non-Buddhist, or, you know, there's, there's a paradoxicalness to it. You know, that's that's kind of where I am today. It's, uh, it's still an important part of my life and, you know, probably always will be, but it's so clearly not the center. Right. I mean, it's such an interesting commentary on like the age we live in, you know, globalization and social media and everything. I mean, people have so many options. They aren't into just 
one thing. And I think there's some real positives to that. And there's some potential pitfalls as well. And I'd love to ask you about this because, you know, I'm someone who's very open to new experiences. And I also enjoy sort of drawing different connections across different disciplines. But I've also been really conscious that, you know, people talk a lot about, certainly in Buddhism, but I think in other traditions as well, about the importance of path. And if you don't have some kind of coherent structure, I've heard you even say this too, it's sort of the problem with the new age movement. It's just this kind of soup of random things thrown in. So what have you learned about how to be open to different traditions and you're not necessarily boxed into one label yet? How do you integrate that into a more coherent path or framework for you? (laughs) Yeah, not in the way that I used to. When I first got interested in integral theory, you know, Ken Wilber's writings, part of what attracted to me to it was that he was presenting literally one of the book titles that I first read was A Theory of Everything. And not in terms of physics, you know, there's the physics theory of everything that attempt to integrate quantum physics and classical physics. But you know, he was going to well beyond that and trying to integrate everything. And I think, you know, some of some of it's just my personality, and maybe this is true of a lot of analytical type people. Like we want to have a clear idea of how everything works. And, you know, and part of that is so we can be more effective, you know, I think. So we can if we can understand how it works and we can uh, use it better or improve it or take it apart and, you know, clean it and rebuild it. I mean, there's something really useful about understanding conceptually how things function. But, you know, part of what I realized as I dove into that project of trying to understand everything was that it just wasn't possible to integrate all of the different paradoxes and contradictions that I ran across. And, and even the attempt to do so led me to be a kind of a terrible conversation partner. Like I'd, I'd be sitting and talking to someone and this happened regularly and I'd be hearing what they were saying, you know, and, and then my first thoughts were, how does this relate to what I'm into and how do I make sense of it there? And how do I present back to them how it makes sense so that they understand how I'm seeing it? I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but that was like my baseline. Yeah, I know what you mean. Of course, when you're getting real into ideas in the life of the mind, I think that can happen. Of course, what's going on there, it's a lot of selfing, right? It's reifying that sense of self very strongly. Yeah, I think that there is a sense of identity around being the one who knows. And the, and the way that that knowing takes form is, is, you know, in a very systematic way. It's like I can build these complex systems and frameworks and part of their characteristic is that they are coherent and they do make sense of things. And if it doesn't make sense of things, then that's just an indication that the system needs to improve. And so there's this sort of goal. And what I found was I had this goal, which I didn't really realize consciously was to kind of integrate everything and to make sense of everything and to develop the sort of evolving system of thought that could do that. And I just assumed that that should be possible. And and one day, you know, I remember when this happened, 2009, I was on a, a month long uh, retreat, meditation retreat, and I was doing inquiry practice where in which you're just working with questions, meditating on questions. And I was working with Questions like, who am I? What am I? And what is love? Those are the three I worked with for the month. And at the, in the evening times, 
I would do a little bit of non-meditation work. I, I was reading a developmental psychologist named Robert Keegan's book, Immunity to Change. And I'd really enjoyed his writing on adult development. And so, and I tried to really, you know, make that part of my, my, my grand theory. And uh, of course, borrowing from Wilbur, who also cited Keegan. And so one day I was working through this book, which was actually a method for developing what he called your meaning making, you know, to, to actually get underneath the core assumptions of how one makes meaning so as to make them an object in awareness, to be able to see those assumptions and not be subject to them anymore, and thus to develop into some new, more complex subjectivity. And while doing that and going through this very complex process over about you know a few weeks, there were several steps in it where, where it ends is in uncovering your hidden assumptions. I, there were one assumption in particular that I was like, it shocked me because I, th I thought there, there's no way this could be an assumption. And which was what I just, I said earlier, you know, that I should be able to integrate uh, or resolve the contradictions and paradoxes, all of them. And once I uncovered that assumption, it kind of, I think it sort of pushed, started to push me out of that way of trying to make sense of everything and started to really open up a kind of deeper questioning. Uh, I ended up finding I would ask more questions to people and be more curious. And I started to find that, in fact, all these people that I thought weren't wise because they didn't talk about things the way I did or weren't aware of the things I was aware, that actually they were profoundly wise. And it was really humbling and really shocking to, to kind of be in that space of not knowing uh, for once. <laughs> and I, I attribute some of that to the inquiry practice too. It really helped get me into the, you know, it helped support this sort of questioning attitude, you know, of being really open and not knowing and led to, to greater openness, um, you know, as you, as you said. So, yeah, you became more interested in the questions than the answers. Yeah, to totally. I, I became more interested in the questions and I, and I, I became more of a, like I, I think of it now as like a deconstructivist. I, I started to really see the limits of systems and the way that every system is a model of something, but can never capture that something completely because life is so much faster than our ideas about it. Yeah. You know, you touched on that space of not knowing. I mean, in being comfortable resting in that space of not knowing, that's something that I've definitely been working with and contemplative practices has, you know, helped me to become a lot more comfortable with, you know, over the last several years, because like you, I'm a very analytical person. And, you know, one thing that I'm very acutely aware of, especially living outside the U.S. and really spending a long time sort of reflecting on U.S. and Western culture and comparing it to Thai and Asian culture is just, I've become very aware of how uncomfortable we are in the West, and I think probably particularly the U.S., and resting in that space of not knowing. Absolutely. Yeah, and that seems particularly kind of acute right now at this moment. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, because everything we thought we knew <laughs> a couple years ago, you know, about who was going to be our president and how things are going to proceed societally and where, you know, where the progressive vision was heading, like all of that got under, undermined and disrupted. Yeah, something I noticed as well, too, you know, with, but yet the fact among 
progressives and people on the left that that faith was shaking about knowing who would win all those things it hasn't shaken their sense of faith in their ideology and their sense that they have the right answer on a lot of things i think for a lot of people that's true i do see examples uh, and i feel it myself too examples of kind of of it being like almost like a catalyst for digging deeper as well. But but I think you're right that there is in some ways a doubling down on ideology that's happening. And, you know, and, and one of my friends rightly pointed out and part, a big part of the reason for that is because there's some deeply held collective traumas being triggered right now, you know, in our country around race and around gender and and, the, and those things, you know, when people become traumatized, you know, this is something I learned as a meditation teacher because meditation, you know, can so easily open one up to trauma. It's like the moment someone is overwhelmed by a previous experience that they couldn't handle in the present, the first response is, well, to be overwhelmed again and then to do whatever one can to try to make it go away, which is usually about projecting it outward and then trying to eliminate the cause, you know, which is not seen as being anything to do with me. Right, right. Do no, I, I see that happening and I, I feel compassion for that, but I, that I also think it's, it's really unfortunate. It is. But, you know, one thing that well, I think among all kind of the crazy stuff happening right now, I do think there's some silver linings. You know, one of them I think is the fact that we're having some really necessary conversations that are long overdue, which you just touched on. And I think the second really interesting silver lining that's happening right now, and I don't think it has anything to do with the current administration, but it's just not being disrupted by the current administration is, you know, this sort of renaissance in psychedelic research. And you really brought this to my attention when I was listening to the conversations with Roland Griffiths several years ago. And I thought this is really interesting because I've been someone who've been who has used psychedelics and found a lot of value in them, you know, for the last 20 years, kind of off and on, but I really wasn't aware a lot of this uh, resurgence in research. And then Recently, you did this series, you know, since you relaunched Buddhist Geeks, where you spoke to several different people on meditating and psychedelics. And so I'm really curious, what sparked you to do this particular series on meditating and psychedelics at this particular time? I mean, some of it was just, you know, my internal process around coming out of the closet as a psychedelic meditator and, you know, just feeling like, okay, this is something that has been an important part of my own practice and life for the last several years. And I had that conversation with Roland Griffiths um, that you mentioned. That was the first time I really explored the topic on Buddhist geeks of psychedelics. And, you know, with him, because he was studying part of what he was studying, part of what we talked about in that conversation was long-term meditators coming in and using psilocybin who hadn't used it or or not much, uh, and the effects of that on long-term practitioners, I had a similar story than that. I had meditated for a long time before I used psychedelics. I'd gone through all of the traditional training and, you know, went through a lot of the states and stages of the, of the path. And so for me, I coming in as a, you know, I guess like somewhat seasoned practitioner and then using psychedelics, it was a very different experience, I think, than the standard story, which is you know, most people who get into meditation and have done psychedelics, it's the other way around. I found they they have a psychedelic experience and that opens them up to seeing 
things differently and often leads to exploring methods like meditation that can explore you know, consciousness directly, subjectively. Because it was the opposite in my case, I ended up sharing that story with Roland that came out of the closet. And then it took me a couple more years before I felt like I had the courage to not just talk to a scientist about it, you know, because the scientists are, you know, they're like, I think of scientists as, as the, these are the religious leaders of secular culture. They're the ones that we look to and we trust, you know, we trust their findings often without understanding them. And there's a deep faith in the scientific process that we have. And, and I was like, oh, well, it, it would be good to talk to other people too that aren't scientists and aren't, that there's not that same level of cultural legitimacy. And I just felt, you know, that felt that this was a, such a taboo topic, especially within the Buddhist and meditative scenes. Um, because in Buddhism, you know, the, the basic the basic story about psychedelics has been, well, all of the, uh, all of these Western teachers who went to Asia in the 60s and 70s and came back, they all did psychedelics, but then they don't talk about them anymore. <laughs> they all sort of seem to agree that it was like it got them on the path and then, you know, they, and then the, the, nothing. It's just like silence. <laughs> you know, and I knew from having got to know a lot of these people well that they still, some of them still did psychedelics, but didn't talk about it. And there was this huge underground community of people who it was part of their practice and they had been exploring and experimenting with it in, in ways that I had as well. And it just seemed like a good topic to try to bring out to the surface a little bit more. I mean, it was already happening. It's, it's not like I, I'm doing this. It's, it's happening across different, uh, a lot of different conversations are moving in this direction. And so I, just, I thought, you know, if I can contribute to that and explore in particular, you know, this intersection of meditation, Buddhism and psychedelics, that would be you know, that, that could be a really useful contribution to this whole, this whole renaissance that you mentioned. Let's talk about some of the challenges of having this conversation, because I know you've mentioned them before in terms of some of the flack you've gotten in. Perhaps at the time it was just, you know, a couple comments that you had sort of highlighted, but I'm curious to know what kind of pushback you've received and sort of who it came from. Did it tend to come more from within the Buddhist community? If so, other where was the the opposition coming from, and kind of what was the nature of the criticism? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been two general kinds of criticisms. One has just it's been the sort of social media criticism. So you know, when we post something on Buddhist Geeks, a new meditating on psychedelics series, you know, often there'll be these, a, a number of comments where people basically say something along the lines of. Buddhism and psychedelics, these have nothing to do with each other. You're totally deluded. <laughs> and so I don't really take those very seriously. And I've seen those, you know, for years, you know, people on social media, we were very comfortable just saying whatever they want. And so that's been one, which is a general kind of non-openness to the, to the topic. And just like thinking that on the surface of it, these things have nothing to do with each other. Or they're antithetical. Why in the hell are you? having the conversation. The other source of criticism really only come from one person, Zen teacher named Brad Warner, and he's been critical of psychedelic use for a while. And so when he saw this, um, you know, for, for him, this was like yet another example of someone, you know, trying to basically push drugs on people and I don't corrupt the youth or something, I'm not sure. <laughs> but you know, he, he has a little bit more of a nuanced perspective on this. And I say little because it's, to me, it's not that much more nuanced, but I had a little bit of a back and forth with him before I realized, you know, this wasn't a conversation that was really happening in good faith. And it really, for me, sat squarely in this camp of, 
what I would call on the other side of the camp is the psychedelic evangelists who are like, you know, you absolutely should take psychedelics and everyone should. And it's a great thing. And let's put it in the water. That's like the, the one side. And then the other side, you've got people like Brad Warner who are like, no, uh, it's never a good idea. We shouldn't do this. No one should do this. It's terrible. And that it's just, it's just that straightforward and that clear. And, you know, to me, I, I sort of look at both of those perspectives and I'm like, oh, okay, well, these are fundamentalist perspectives. You know, these are, there's no, there is no room for nuance and there is no space for nuance. Now, Brad, I, I later learned he, he claims that he, his views are more nuanced than that, but he presents that publicly because he really thinks the dangers outweigh the, the benefits so much that he should never even open the door publicly to that possibility. So, you know, so to, to me, that's not really a conversation because it contradicts the very obvious firsthand reports of so many, 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 many people who have said, in fact, this has been beneficial. It also contradicts the, the growing scientific literature on the topic, which points out in so many unique cases, uh, death and dying, uh, contemplation, addiction, that there are real tangible benefits, measurable benefits to using these things. And so I'm just like, well, I don't want to have that conversation because it isn't one. And I'm not going to dignify that kind of absolutism with a voice or giving it more perspective or giving it more space than it already has. You know, people are already, I think, so attracted to these absolutistic perspectives because of their certainty, because of like the unwaveringness of their certainty. And sorry, I'm, I'm not going to give that any more space. Yeah. Preach. Totally with you. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it goes both ways because I say this as someone who's who's really an advocate in terms of the potential benefit uses of psychedelics for certain people in certain instances. But it's been really obvious to me from the first times using them when I was like in my, my teens, like this is not for everyone. And so I think those That's, who yes. are preaching that are really doing a disservice. We do not need to repeat this, the mistakes of Tim Leary and, you know, and I know people say serves at the scapegoat. I think that can be true to some extent, but I don't think it was helpful then that approach. And I don't think it'll oh, be helpful now. It was so tremendously naive, you know, and, and maybe understandable given the period of time and history and stuff, but like from the <laughs> retrospectively, it was like extremely naive and idealistic. Which was, you know, that's the hippie generation, the boomer generation. <laughs> What's that? Well, so, you know, let's talk about, I'm very curious to hear about, you spoke to some amazing teachers, you know, just off the top of my head. And I know there are many more, but, you know, Spring Washam, you know, who I've had on this show and I told you I've attended her retreat. Um, she's wonderful. Yeah. You spoke with Spring, you spoke with Trudy Goodman, you spoke with Joan Halifax and, you know, so many other amazing people. I'm curious, you know, what did you learn throughout this process that, perhaps really surprised you or shifted your perspective? Yeah. I mean, one, one thing I learned is that in a very big way, you know, the conversation right now around this topic isn't where it was like 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago, there's a book published called Zigzag Zen. And that was a really important kind of initial exploration of Buddhism and psychedelics. And at that time, you know, the main conversation that was happening, which I wasn't a part of, obviously, because at that point I wasn't exploring these things, was, you know, what is the relationship between psychedelic use and the sort of Buddhist commitment to ethics? 
And in particular, you know, in the Buddhist context, there's something called the fifth precept. It's one of the kind of core moral trainings, which is around avoiding intoxicants that cause heedlessness. And one of the classic ones that's described is alcohol in the tradition. You know, it's like if you drink alcohol enough of it, then suddenly it's much easier to then start doing a bunch of other things that kind of break our, our, our sort of commitment to, to like, you know, taking care of ourselves and others. And there was a big conversation about that and people, you know, landed on different sides of that conversation, but where the conversation has gone, and this is something that Eric Davis really pointed out to me who wrote a chapter in Zig Zag Zen called The Paisley Gate, and who's been exploring psychedelics uh, for a long time. He said, you know, really the conversation now is around, you know, how do these things interface and what might it look like um, to practice as a psychedelic meditator or psychedelic Buddhist or someone who wants to bring the, the contemplative and the psychedelic together? Um, what, is the, what are the actual nuts and bolts of that like? And how could we, uh, in his terms, unwild um, psychedelic use and make it more above board and more transparent and more clear safety protocols and more, you know, innovation in terms of how those things are done. And to me, that's also where the conversation is most interesting. And so that's been something that's surprised me is that the conversation is more developed than even I imagined. Uh, and having, you know, talking to these people who've really been the pioneers in exploring these things has helped, helped me see that. Um, and then you know, the other thing I, I learned, um, and, and this was really through talking to Trudy, who's also one of my closest teachers, is that you know, this, a lot of the senior Buddhist teachers, I think, are very open to this conversation now. And even though she's not a psychedelic user, or she was you know, in her early days, but no longer, she, still, she still has a tremendous amount of openness toward the topic. And um, I found a number of Buddhist teachers who are senior teachers, you know, they're really well-respected and well-regarded, who are very open and even encouraging this conversation to take place. Her husband, Jack Cornfield, is another great example of this, another the pioneers. And so that's something that, that's been really uh, heartening, you know, is to, to see that there is support even amongst those people who aren't themselves using psychedelics. Right. Yeah, I've definitely gotten that sense from Jack from certain things that he said, you know, he'll just, it's a sort of subtle nod, but he'll be giving a Dharma talk yes. and he'll reference sort of, you know, whether you're out on a walk or taking a sacred medicine or doing this, you know, he'll kind of throw it in there. Mm -hmm. But I've gotten the sense that he is very supportive, you know. Yeah. And I, for me, that's, that's nice because, you know, I, I like getting a nod from the elders mm -hmm. simply because, you know, they know some things, <laughs> they've yeah. learned some stuff. And at the same time, you know, the elders that I've hung out with that I've appreciated the most are the ones who aren't, they're not demanding that their students replicate what they've done or that they replicate the Dharma that they taught. Um, in fact, you know, when Trudy authorized my wife and I to teach, you know, part of what she said was, I trust your Dharma. Mm -hmm. And to me, that means I trust you, you know, and it doesn't mean I'm not going to make mistakes or that she doesn't think I'm going to make mistakes, but it's more about, you know, it's the interpersonal connection and care. You know, it's like what you imagine a good family member. It's like they find out that they, they love you and, and, and support you no matter what. It's like that, you know, and, and, and I really appreciate having that support from the people that have been there for me the most as, as teachers and who have learned the most from. Have they given you any insight without, you know, naming any names or sharing anything too personal? Have, have these sort of senior teachers that you've 
spoken with given you any insight or guidance on how you how they see sort of this conversation unfolding in a skillful way, whether it's in within Dharma communities or sort of larger sort of spiritual circles? Not really. And, and, and that's, I think, you know, a nod back to them is like the, they've really been hands off in that sense. Maybe there's a recognition, like, we're, we're going to be the ones, you know, that have to figure that out <laughs> and they're not going to be necessarily around to help figure that out. Uh, and that's not their, not their core interest. So no, I don't think they've, they've, the teachers that I've talked to, you know, Jack and Trudy, I mentioned Kenneth Folk is another of my closest teachers who, who had, side note, his first major opening experience was doing LSD. So, you know, he, and he shares that pretty openly. Those folks haven't haven't tried to in any way guide or direct what's happening, and I yeah I appreciate that too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and one notable difference, and you know, it's sort of back to the beginning of the conversation, and I think perhaps how things are shifting, not only for you but more for people in this generation. People are eschewing labels a bit more, and right if you're not situating yourself directly in, say, a Buddhist tradition as opposed to saying, I don't know, doing meditation or offering Buddhist-based meditations. Yes. yes. You know, there's no need to get bogged down in a debate on the fifth precept. Right. And yeah. how that wording was translated, you know, from Pali right. or whatever it is. So, I mean, that's an interesting conversation as well, is because I know you're shifting away from Buddhism and you're acknowledging the role of it to just meditation, you know, generally. And yes. So in what ways is that kind of influencing you and how you take this conversation forward? Do you feel less constrained by some of the debates that we're seeing within Dharma communities? Yeah. So, I mean, the way I think about this is, you know, if the tradition is like a circle, you know, innovation happens at the edges and, you know, the innovation can happen, I think, from the inside edges of the circle. Mm hmm. And it, it can also happen from the outside edges of the circle. And in fact, it has, it has to happen probably in both places. Both people within the tradition and those that sound slightly outside of it have to push and pull things forward in ways that both honor the, the continuity of that form or those lineages while also res having them respond and adapt to the new environmental conditions in which they exist. And for me, I feel very much like I'm kind of weaving in and out. I'm like hanging out at the very edge of the perimeter. And I know many people like this, you know, we're like trying to work with the tradition without totally rejecting it. You know, you go far enough outside of the circle, we no longer have any interest in it and who cares. Um, but to me, I found a pull back toward the tradition because there's so much useful stuff there. And so starting Buddhist Geeks back again, it's like, okay, the, the moving back in toward the circle, hmm. heading back out, in, out, in, out, that weaving in and out to me has been central to being able to try and offer something that's more integrative and still maintain some consistency or coherency. Because I think part of, I see that part of the challenge of the time we live in is in losing context you know, and becoming totally atomized, as uh, David Chapman puts it, his work on meaningness. And to me, Twitter is a great example of that. You know, the, all these atomized 
context-free bits of information kind of just streaming by. And, you know, it can be the same thing with meditation and spiritual stuff. There's all of these different possible things you could do and you could go this and this and this and this and this. Like, you know, and if it, it, at some point it just, be, it can become way too fragmented to be useful in any, and, and to, to kind of have any really powerful sticking point or, you know, way in which it integrates. And I think what happens, unfortunately, when people don't have a coherent narrative is that the coherent narrative becomes about me mm -hmm. and it just becomes about the self and individualism. And like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and whatever feels good, man. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. that kind of narcissistic spirituality is something I'm just not, I'm not interested in spirituality is already has a, a narcissistic enough tendency, you know, like we're sitting and like paying attention to our subjectivity. <laughs> Why then, you know, just become completely untethered. I don't think that's, that's really helpful. So yeah, so I have found that freedom of like being on the outside of the circle, but I've also found the power of being in and inside. And I don't know how to do anything, but kind of weave my way through uh, and around that, um, those boundary lines. A comment that Roshi Joan made to you in your talk with her kind of touched on something important that you said. You know, it was really, it was talking about the motivation for doing something, mm -hmm. whether it's psychedelics yes. or practicing. And she was saying, particularly in the Mahayana tradition, you know, yes. the emphasis on bodhicitta, on awakening for the benefits of all beings is particularly important. And of course, I think that's true for many people in the Theravada tradition as well. It's just, made that yes. much more explicit in my Mahayana. Yes. And right. I'm wondering sort of, I guess there are a couple of different ways in which I want to discuss this, you know, for psychedelics as well, but perhaps we can even just start with meditation and how you're viewing this and perhaps this sort of Buddhist, non-Buddhist or taking outside the lineage you know, yes. phase is, yes. is there an issue? I've heard Alan Wallace say this, you know, I'm not teaching just a technique. And there's a problem with teaching just the technique. You know, you need to be clear about sort of the motivation for practicing. You need to be clear about why the technique is helpful. And so I'm wondering, can you talk about how you kind of take the technique outside of the circle and yet make, you know, what comes along with it or what gets lost and yeah. what's still important and specifically with respect to the role of intention or motivation for practice? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. This is a big question. The way I'd frame the question is, you know, how, how does one unbundle or take out these different powerful techniques like mindfulness or different forms of concentration or like I mentioned, inquiry practice? How do you take those out of the tradition and still present them in ways that are useful, um, that recognize that people have motivations for practice and that, you know, unless we're just going to exist in this totally um, like ethically neutral place or thinking that we exist in this ethically neutral place where it doesn't matter what one does with those things, you know, they could just as easily, you know, use concentration practices to refine their attention, you know, to be able to do horrific things, or they could use it to do really great things. Yeah. How does that work? And how has it worked in the tradition? And how do we, how do we move forward with it? This question, I, I, that's for me, it's essential as a teacher. And, you know, I think one way to look at the question is to go back and see how the tradition, uh, the early tradition dealt with it. And, and learn from that. And, and the way that I understand early Buddhism worked with this question is they said, you know, basically one of the core aspects of the path is to have what's called the correct view, mm -hmm. the right view, samaditi in the Pali. And the idea was, you know, you, 
in order to start practicing, you have to first understand what you're practicing for and why. And once that's clear, then and only then can you really do the practice and get the results that it's designed for. And, you know, for in, in the Buddhist tradition, a, a big part of what right view has to do with, especially in the early Buddhist tradition, it has to do with seeing the three characteristics of experience, you know, that that there's suffering and that, you know, things change and that, you know, basically any kind of holding on in the midst of that change causes, you know, su- suffering, the the first truth. And then, and then also that, you know, that there's no solid reference point in, in this changing fluxing field, um, that, that there's a kind of selflessness to it. And also there's a, so much other, you know, models, you know, there's the four noble truths and the factors of awakening. And there's, you know, there's all these kind of things that together, this interlocking system of early Buddhism, you know, calls right view. And you have to kind of get that before you can practice well. And that's the idea. To me, that is its own kind of absolutism of absolutizing the Buddhist system. And it's problematic because even within Buddhism, other views evolved. <laughs> like you mentioned the Mahayana view. Um, it actually was a different view. It, you know, in the Mahayana revolution, that that way of thinking put compassion in made it equivalent to wisdom, which prior to that it wasn't emphasized in that sense. It also put, like you said, the aspiration to awaken other beings as being central and critical, whereas before it was referenced, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the centerpiece. Um, and it also, their metaphysics and epistemologies were different in terms of how emptiness was conceived. You know, Nagarjuna was arguably the first Mahayana philosopher, you know, talked about emptiness as interdependence and not simply as, you know, the lack of a, of a solid coherent thing that actually, you know, emptiness had to do with the ways that everything was interconnected. And so all of those things are different views. And so if we j- even just looking back over the history of Buddhism, there isn't one right view. There've, there've been evolving views and different views, and they've led to arguably different results and different experiences, certainly different conceptions about what the path is and how to walk it. And Alan Wallace, you know, who you mentioned, he points this out. He, he pointed this out in a really good article, which I can't remember, but I'll send a link to you. Um, in which he talked about these different historical views. And so for for me, recognizing that, you know, that there are different views and even different legitimate views helped me break free of the idea of right view, but still still very much has me wonder, you know, what are people doing this for? Like, why do they really want to meditate? What is it they want to get from meditating that if they could have that would be more important to them? And part of what I found, especially as a teacher, when I started to switch how I taught from teaching a particular you know, model of practice and of the results toward being more curious and asking people questions about their motivation and seeing why it is that they wanted to do these things. Some, some of what I found is they wanted to do it at first because that's what they read in a book. You know, I, I think I should be doing this because so-and-so wrote that I should be doing this. It's like, well, okay, well, if you could do this, what is it that you'd want from doing it? Why are you doing it? Uh, part of what I found is that people often aren't aware or very clear on why they're doing things. Mm-hmm. And so to me, one of the answers to this is to include the, the question of intention and the practice of inquiring into our own intentionality and trying to clarify what it is that's driving us, that that is itself a form of meditation and that it's critical 
you know, to be able to be, to be successful at what one is actually trying to achieve. And what I found is that what people are actually trying to achieve when they really get down underneath the question, it almost always has something to do with alleviating pain or exploring and living into some deeper truth about who and what they are often have something to do with the heart and love and compassion for other people. You know, what I found is like that those, the, the basic drives and motivations that drive seemingly most everyone are really at core, um, beautiful things. And so that's given me more trust in being able to unbundle different meditative techniques and offer them in a little bit more of like a modular way where, where I can trust that people can find their own way into meditation through the techniques first. And then as they deepen with that and start to explore further, that then the, the, the deeper understanding of what is one is driving, you know, what's being, what is the motivation that's driving one? And, you know, what could this be as that opens up and it, gets deeper, you know, that's where I found then these questions about morality and ethics and, you know, and tradition start to naturally come up. And so it's in, in a way, the way that I teach um, through Meditate.io, the way my wife and I teach is we, we, you know, we do the whole unbundling thing. You said, there's these different ways of meditating, find your way. And as you go deeper, it's also useful to explore other ways. And as one explores other ways, you know, what you find, uh, what I think most people find is that the learning from one technique crosses over to another technique. And the question, the inquiry, which is one of the ways we teach inquiry practice, the inquiry and the questioning opens up new understandings and insights that then influence how and why one practices. And I just sort of deeply trust the maturation process that people go through when they're engaged in a sincere process of questioning and seeking and practicing. I, I just really deeply trust it. And so to me, I don't feel like we have to first indoctrinate people into a particular view and tell them this is how they should be practicing before we can trust them with the teaching. I think instead, you know, that people's own views can emerge and they can become known and deepen as their path unfolds. And I see the path now really not as something that's laid out before us, but something which is an emergent phenomena. It's something which emerges with each step. And, you know, teachers in the old traditional sense thought, you know, that they're helping people walk these clearly mapped out paths. And sometimes that happens. People do, in fact, I, I found just resonate with a particular path and do really well walking a traditional path. And I support people in that. But, you know, sometimes what emerges on the path is like nothing I could anticipate or expect. And so part of what I found is like meditating today, you know, today's age in the internet age, it's partially, it's partially about co-constructing the path together, co-discovering co the path together because teachers know some things, but they don't really know what's emerging next. Right. Yeah. This is really interesting to me, actually. And I've, I'm not surprised to hear you say it, given, you know, what you've developed with Meditate IO. I've downloaded the app and I've been using it a little bit. I really like it. I'm curious to hear a bit more about sort of how this view kind of manifests itself in the retreats you teach. Like how 
does a retreat that you and Emily offer look different than, say, your typical IMS retreat? Yeah, a few ways because you know that was our training. You know the the years that we spent on retreat were all at places like Spirit Rock Meditation Center and IMS, and those centers, like most contemplative communities, I think in the twentieth century, developed forms or retreat forms that were pretty standardized. Like in the same way that if you went to McDonald's, you know, one town and then went to another town, you're going to expect it the same thing roughly. Mm -hmm which in this case is, you know, totally silent retreat um, with lots of individual solo time, but within a group um, with very short, brief encounters with the teachers in very prescribed forms. That's the kind of the basic IMS model. And what we've been exploring, how we teach retreat is one thing we do differently is we do often teach a kind of a system of practice you know, this practice and this practice and this practice, and there's kind of an unfolding um, of, of the system. But we also encourage people to go off script and, and to go off road and not, you know, that they don't have to follow this. And part of the reason for that is that I found, you know, when I was a practitioner, I did that anyway. Um, and in fact, a lot of the teachers I worked with encouraged it, but it wasn't ever publicly encouraged. It wasn't like, feel free to, to take ownership of your own path even here while we're presenting a particular vision or view of the path. Um, so that's one way that we do things differently. Sorry to interject, Vince. Can you give a quick example yeah. of that? Do you mean you would like switch and use a different technique at a different time than the prescribed one because that felt right to you? Or can you sort of give an example? Yeah. yeah. Uh, most insight meditation retreats, there's a sort of unfolding of, of the technique that's taught over the course of the retreat. Um, usually involves some concentration practice, some, in, some mindfulness or vipassana practice, and some metta or loving kindness practice. And you know, the the standard instruction is to follow the instructions. But there are lots of people, especially people who have done a lot of retreats, that they're doing their own thing. Like on that month long that I talked about doing inquiry practice, that that was not the instruction being given. That's was an instruction that I was following and working with privately uh, teachers privately. So I wasn't following the instructions. I was off doing my own thing, doing this inquiry practice. And so that's that's kind of what I mean. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So we actively encourage um, people to do that on, on our retreats. And, you know, another thing that's different is we practice uh, what we call social meditation on all of the retreats we lead, at least some. Some retreats we've done more, some less. But we always make some room for intersubjective uh, meditation periods where it's not just quiet and alone, which is a kind of, there's a kind of socialness to being alone together. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's not social, but it's, it's like the most antisocial social thing right. I think people can right. do. <laughs> so it's very we, we monastic, in, right. Which is where it came from. Exactly. It's very monastic. And so we, we've learned and have developed various social meditation techniques that come out of the tradition. You know, there are adaptations of techniques that already exist, like social noting uh, was one example that my uh, teacher, Kenneth Folk, developed, and we've kind of helped build on that. Um, so often we'll do a period of social noting, and social noting, you know, one is uh, noting out loud what one is experiencing. You know, so it's like something like this. There's seeing, there is breathing, there is relaxing. There is stillness. There is anticipation. And in the social practice, we would actually go back and forth. I don't know if you'd be up for doing that with me for a second. <laughs> I happily um, would. You know, in fact, what you set up when you first launched Meditate.io, 
you and had some free sessions and I actually was in a group with you and one other person. And it was the first oh, time. Oh, cool. I didn't I'd, realize that. Yeah. And it was the first time I'd ever been introduced to the practice. And I found it so interesting because I'd never done noting or really any other kind of meditation with someone else. And it's fascinating. So yeah, I'd be happy to do it with you if you'd like. Yeah, let's let's just demonstrate it. This is the really simplest way of doing it. There is, and then just use a simple word or label to describe what you're sensing. And then we just ping pong back and forth. Sure. So there is confusion. There is stillness. There is tightness. There is anticipation. There is exhaling. There is relaxing. There's breathing. There is movement. There is appreciation. There is gratitude. There is joy. There is equanimity. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, even there in our little, what, 30 seconds, I mean, you can kind of hear how our internal experience started to interface, mm -hmm. especially emotionally, and started to kind of create this positive feedback loop. That's something we teach on retreat. And that's something I found helps curb the very strong tendencies that some people have when they're alone on retreat, especially for long periods. It helps curb the tendency toward isolation. And it helps also bring the meditative awareness into the interpersonal field uh, and to start to see some of the same basic truths, but in the way that they play out together. And for long-term meditators, what I found is when they do social meditation, first of all, they usually dislike it <laughs> because it feels like it knocks them out of their stillness. Right. And then if they continue with it, then they almost always describe how it leads to all of these rich insights. And so we, we, we make that a central part of our retreats as well. And you know, part of the reason for me in doing that is also, you know, I think that the basic metaphysics of our time is moving from you know, individualism to something more like the network, you know, where our understanding of who we are is becoming more like we're networked. We're made up and make up each other. And we see that, you know, on social media in such clear and painful ways sometimes. <laughs> and we see that, you know, <laughs> in, you know, having podcast conversations and, you know, tuning into our tribes and he's like, we're so much made up by each other. And, and so to meditate in a way that acknowledges that I think helps liberate the collective delusions that we all share together a little bit more. So that's the second piece of how we teach that's different. And that's changing too. I'd say that's that's how we teach, but but that's becoming also very common among other communities. Uh, it used to not be, but now it's becoming more and more common, these intersubjective or social practices. The third thing we do differently is we we actually have a formal period of what we call contemplative technology practice on each retreat we lead, where after uh, lunch for a couple hours, we invite people to use technology as they like. And most retreats invite you to give uh, give them your telephone <laughs> and lock it away, which, you know, there's something really beneficial about that too. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily say don't do that. But to me, you know, the phone, uh, the smartphone and the way that we've become so networked to each other, you know, it's part of us now. Um, it's not just that we're addicted to these things. It's like, you know, can, can you be addicted to breathing? 
you know, you have to breathe to be alive. For many people that are growing up now, it's similar. You know, in fact, there's psychological studies that show that, like the, the tremendous amount of anxiety and, and pain, psychological distress that can happen when people have their phones taken away. I don't think that just means it's a fa failure on their part. I think it means that we have a new networked form of uh, human emerging. So to include that as part of the meditative process, even on retreat, you know, to, to be able to see how do I relate to my technology? How do I use it with this really highly concentrated mind and attention, you know, that gets developed while practicing all day? To me, that's also really important. So yeah, those are some of the ways that, we, that we've kind of modified the basic retreat form to, to make it a little bit more peer-to-peer, -peer, a little bit more networked, a little bit more of a kind of exploration, not just of the deep subjective truths or the deep, you know, truths about consciousness, but, but also the inner, you know, way that it's intersubjective. One thing that really jumps out in sort of describing what you're offering is it's actually, it's mirroring to me this sort of really important debate that happens not only within Buddhism, but really within different schools of Indian thought between householder and monastic Yes. Traditions. Yeah. Huh? You know, mm -hmm. and there there were always people, you know, and the Bhagavad Gita is a really prominent example of it, talking about it is possible to find awakening in day-to-day -day life. And in fact, we need to develop some kind of practice and path to do that because that's what the vast majority of us live. And in fact, it's the householders who enable the monastic life as well, right? Through their contributions and through the funding of the temples and the monasteries. And yeah, through their hard work. Through their hard work. And so many different aspects about the retreat that you offer seem to really be, in one sense, adapting, you know, a traditional, you know, monastic form for modern times, but also seems to be hearkening back to a really important point that people have been making for a long time. And, and that makes so much sense because in this day and age, virtually everyone you know, who's coming to your retreat is going to be going back to their, you know, I almost said nine to five, yes. but who works nine to five anymore? But going back to their, <laughs> their very busy jobs and lifestyle and demands. And so I yeah. think finding Kids. ways to integrate it is really valuable because some people not only have aversion to some of the silence, but some people have attachment to it. You know, I can, oh, yeah. I, I'm one of those people. And I think that's true for a lot of people who gravitate towards this style yes. of practice. And so it's figuring out, oh, actually, maybe this space can be something we can use to figure out how to start integrating it right now so that when we go back into the real world, it's not this really sharp break and we're actually able to take our practice, you know, yes. through our day-to-day -day Yes. More. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And it's, yeah, central to our inquiry, which is how can could one both experience the benefits of this sort of dedicated and committed time of practice, which is so rare, you know, to be able to do and, and which really provides certain kinds of possibilities that don't exist day to day for most people, you know, the ability to, for instance, develop high levels of concentration that, you know, and not just a kind of concentration that is fluid, but, but that is kind of deeply absorbed in, in like one object. That's really not possible for most people outside of a place like retreat. And yet to then go from that back into this totally almost opposite environment, it creates a kind of 
for many people, a kind of schizophrenia where they feel like the only place that their practice really happens is on retreat or when they're sitting on a cushion. And it creates this sort of dichotomy or this duality that then becomes its own source of pain, yeah. <laughs> ironically. And that's what I found, you know, going in and out of retreat. And, and like you said, the, the, you know, holding on to the stillness and the silence. And, you know, I think equating that with awakeness um, is one of the one of the main mistakes that practitioners make. And it's an understandable one because stillness feels so good. And it's so nice to have a still body and a still mind, a still heart. But that stillness is developed on retreat because of the, largely because of the conditions and the, the environmental conditions. So, you know, if we say we have to always make our environment such that we can experience that, but then we also live in an environment which is totally different than that. Of course, it's, it's going to be a total failure. But in, instead, you know, can we introduce our normal environment into the retreat environment and see, and, you know, see that environment differently? I have found that that makes integration more, a little more seamless. Um, it's not totally seamless. Just like taking, you know, any, anytime you have a profound experience and there's a lot of expansion, there's going to be the contraction that follows it. I think that's just true of, of meditation and drugs and any other experience where there's a lot of expansion. But you know that that's its own question of how to deal with expansion and contraction. And and to me that you know what ties it all together is awakeness. You know, awakeness is not something which is dependent on the conditions. In my understanding, a moment of being awake, as Sharon Salzberg says, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, a moment of noticing what is. And just being with what is, is freedom. And it doesn't matter whether that happens in the middle of a two-month silent meditation retreat or if it happens, you know, at the In-N-Out Burger. It just doesn't. And to think that it does is delusion. You know, it is the thing that keeps us from being able to be awake. And I think, you know, a lot of people, yeah, we, we naturally tend to confuse our ideas about the path with, you know, what's happening and, yeah. We've been talking about, you know, how we could integrate or develop some kind of retreat model where we're integrating meditation to day-to-day life more. And now I want to weave, you know, psychedelics into this and talk about uh-huh. how do you envision integrating psychedelics into a retreat format? I mean, I know some people are already starting to do this with psilocybin and going to Jamaica and places where it's legal. Yeah, I might be doing that myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought so. So talk about a little bit. Talk about that, please, and, and how you envision really incorporating entheogens into a retreat format. Yeah, I mean, my ideas right now are very, they're very general, and I, I don't, I would, wouldn't say I have a lot of conclusions on this, but it's something I'm really interested in and curious about. So maybe, maybe I could just share like the general sure. vague thoughts. One vague thought, one general thought is, you know, both psychedelics and high doses of meditation, what they both seem to have in common to me is that they can lead to states of high concentration. And, you know, when one is in a state of high concentration, like really profound concentration, the mind is not going anywhere. It's non-distracted. A highly concentrated mind is a psychedelic mind. You know, we start to perceive with deep concentration, subtle phenomena that has, had escaped our attention prior, you know, start to perceive very subtle types of experiences of even formless or, or, or 
experiences where there isn't a body or it's a different body or there, you know, the body merges with space, for instance, and all there is is just infinite space. That's one of the, you know, classic Buddhist concentration states. Those states are really profound because our normal identity gets changed in them. You know, it, it disappears um, for some time, you know, what we think we are. And also the types of insights tend to be so mystical, you know, in, in their nature and so profound. They have the feeling of truthfulness to them of like, this is more real than real, hyper-reality. And those experiences, I think, can really deeply influence and transform people's understandings. And psychedelics do the same thing, but to me, they, they do them in a slightly different way. It's maybe a little bit less directable than with long-term concentration practice. The, I think it, that maybe that's one of the main differences is in long-term concentration practice, attention becomes much more malleable and directable than in a psychedelic experience where it feels like often that the, the trip is happening to you. I mean, it's not that that doesn't also happen on meditation <laughs> retreats. But maybe a little more so, there's, a, there's a, a quality of being able to direct that highly concentrated attention. And so part of what I'm thinking about, you know, it's, it's if both of these things seem to lead to high states of concentration, you know, what's the best way to combine them? My first thought is that it might not be a good idea to both be doing really hardcore, silent, intensive concentration building practice, and then doing big doses of psychedelics, that that actually maybe is too much of a good thing. So I'm curious about what, you know, what would be the com the right combination or balance, you know, of stillness and formal practice with the right dosage of, of entheogen to help kind of open up or amplify or accentuate what's already happening. So, you know, I've, I've kind of... Uh, presumed that on a long meditation retreat where there's some psychedelic substances involved that, you know, that it would, it would be really interesting to try like lower doses of the substance and higher doses of meditation and kind of play with those different dosages and see, you know, what are the right combinations for people, what works. That's one thing that I'd be curious about. You know, one of my friends, Michael Taft, um, who I've talked to about this, you know, he also pointed out that, you know, with the psychedelic experience, it's a really good idea to do other things like to paint and to dance and to use the body. It's such a somatic experience, especially psilocybin, that having these more integrative and movement-based practices be part of it is would also probably be a really good idea. So, you know, and that fits in nicely with, you know, not kind of overdoing the silent meditation. So, you know, it's things like that. And I think the intersubjective practices would be also really interesting to do in that setting. And I've done that privately. Um, and it is really interesting. But one of the things I disagreed with when I talked to Roland Griffiths, I disagreed with him about was that, that it's somehow not possible to do psychedelics and be in an interpersonal or intersubjective space together. You know, and that I think the classical idea is that, you know, you take enough psilocybin and you're out you know, and you're just in your own world and own experience. But, you know, if you look at how they do the research at Johns Hopkins, you know, basically people come in, they have like some trip sitters and they put on these, you know, put on some music and put on like blinders, you know, and lay down on the couch and, and are instructed to go into their own world. Right. But like I've done things where we've done the social noting while beginning middle of a journey and that works. Mm -hmm. um, it actually does work <laughs> uh, even on higher doses. So, you know, I think, I think I'd, it'd be cool to see what those intersubjective practices look like in that context uh, as well. 
Not sure about technology. <laughs> uh, although I will say I'm really interested also in technodelics, you know, and right. technologies that, that can do similar things to alter perception and how that and meditation could mix together too. But this may be another conversation. When you said you were working with the phone earlier in the conversation, even knowing that I was going to ask you this question, I was like, oh, I'm going to be interested to hear what he says about that one. <laughs> looking at an iPhone on psychedelics is sometimes too much to bear. It's a pretty wild experience. Yeah. You know, one thing that I found, I'm just sort of bringing this in as a thought to share, having been on Springs, Richard, mm -hmm. and of course, different medicines are different and that's part of it and the setting. And, right. you know, we would do a meditation for 30 minutes before. And I think we were trying different nice. techniques on different nights I will say what really resonated for me, and I've continued to do since, even when I was doing, working with a psychedelic in a different context, is meta practice really feels like mm. the right thing. I mean, right for me, you know, in that particular space, mm -hmm. because there's something about it that is such a heart opening experience. It is, it is so about kind of getting out of the analytical mind and into mm -hmm. a more intuitive space that I yeah. just found that yes. really to be the a nice foundation for going into the rest of the experience. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You know, one thing that came up in your conversation with, with Roshi Joan, and I wanted to talk to you about this as, as well, because I know Buddhist geeks, we've been talking about, you know, a lot about Buddhism and psychedelics, but you are so interested in that intersection with technology, as am I. And yes. I think one very yep. interesting thing that comes up is the language people use to describe psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And people often talk about psychedelics. And I've actually heard in particular for ayahuasca, people describe it as feeling like a kind of reprogramming or deprogramming, that that's what it felt like. I will say that it, it definitely felt like that on just a whole body, mind level. And other people sort of resist that language, you know, the more modern yes. technological language. And they're saying we're not machines. And that's part of the problem is how we, when we conceive of ourselves this way. And it sort of highlighted kind of a budding of paradigms of a more traditional indigenous one and a more modern technological mm. one. And I'm, yeah. And it, I see sort of the different values popping up there of different camps who work with psychedelics. And I'm curious how yeah. you think of that and how you make sense of that as someone who clearly is interested in technology, but clearly has respect for tradition as well. Yeah. Yeah. This question's been big and up for me too in the last few years when I moved to North Carolina from Colorado and moved from a really techie place, Boulder, Colorado, you know, it's like the most Buddhist techie place you could probably find in the world, maybe outside of some neighborhoods in San Francisco, to a place that has its own deep spiritual roots, but they're, they're much more indigenous. There's a lot, a large Peruvian shamanic, you know, community there and Hindu communities. And it's much more eclectic and much more, I'd say much more feminine in a certain way, much more relational. When I, when I moved to North Carolina, and here I'm talking about Asheville, I don't live there actually anymore, but that question really came up big for me because I was getting re-immersed in this more, yeah, nature-based and, and indigenous-based community and really appreciating that quite a bit and really questioning some of the things that you'd mentioned, which 
know, to me, it's like the, the questioning the whole computer as metaphor for self idea. And, you know, I think it's, I often use that as a metaphor and I translate a lot of teachings through that metaphor. And I think it is a useful modern metaphor. And, you know, I, when it's not experienced as a metaphor, when people start to actually think they are a computer, you know, that I think it can be a problem. <laughs> and, and here's the weird thing about computers. I, I started off as a computer engineer. Um, this is my training. And so, you know, we, like the whole training is around building computers. <laughs> and if you look at the history of computers, which I'm sure you have, um, given your background, computers are changing and they continue to change. And, you know, what we think of as like a mainframe computer or something, that's no longer what a computer is anymore. Um, in fact, you know, computers are becoming more like organisms and more dynamic and more, you know, biological in certain ways as they develop. They're certainly now they're more networked and more interconnected like things are within organisms. Um, and so to me, it's like the computer as metaphor I think it's acceptable so long as we continue to understand that our whole notion of computer is changing as our as our understanding of the of, you know the world and biology changes and, and and in a way like the computer is our best attempt you know to represent what life is I mean what is AI aside from trying to take our current understanding of what makes life life and to create a different form of life that mirrors that life and so the computer to me is a metaphor of life. It's, it's attempting constantly to try to approximate toward life. Um, and in that sense, I think it, it's, a good, it's a good metaphor. But, but not to confuse the metaphor of the model with reality is also smart. <laughs> or, or to be able to perceive and experience through different metaphors. Like, for instance, um, lately I've been really interested in the elemental practice, you know, of working with earth and fire and air and wind and space which are very traditional practices across, you know, many contemplative traditions, Taoism, Buddhism, et cetera. Yeah. And so what I learned about that is like, it's actually a way of perceiving reality differently. Like if you really focus on earth or fire or, or air, or water, you, you know, it's not this that you're focusing on this idea of earth, but you start to become aware of the earth-like quality of the body and of you know, of the air-like quality of the breath and start to perceive reality and in, in, in states of high concentration, it can even be you start to perceive reality as elemental. And so, you know, that's, I think, a valid way of understanding the world or perceiving the world for certain things. It like reveals certain kinds of insights and certain things about um, experience. And I think that's really useful to be able to move in and out of some of these different metaphors and not just as ideas, but as living realities. That's an interesting answer. I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. And I think one thing you touched on that's so important is, is language is so relevant to the context in which we're using it, right, and to the audience. And it's interesting hearing how that came up and how you became more aware of that as you went from, from Boulder to Asheville. And I'm going to ask the next question sort of in mind that I know we'll probably need to wrap up you know, in the next few minutes, because I'm conscious of your time, which you've been very generous with. But you said you've moved recently. And I'm, I'm curious sort of where you've moved to and what prompted that decision and, and how you sort of <laughs> see that unfolding with respect to the, you know, retreats and things like that, that you'll be offering. Yeah, yeah, we, we actually just moved, as we'd say in the south up the road a little bit. And we moved to a city called Winston-Salem. It's the city of arts and innovation. 
and really a city that I didn't know much about before moving here. So I'm, I'm really learning about it. I've been here like a month as of this conversation. So, you know, part of what prompted the move, you know, some of it I've been telling people, it's funny to think about, well, you know, why do you, why does one make a big life decision? You know, like have a kid or, or take a new job or, you know, sell your house or any of these things. One thing I noticed in, in moving and in kind of going through the process of deciding is, you know, one day we're set on moving here. Next day, we're questioning it, doubting it. And we're, you know, thinking about staying in Asheville, moving somewhere else in Asheville, around Asheville. And it's, it's funny, I've just noticed the mind's tendency to make up a series of reasons for doing whatever it is I think I'm doing now. But one problem is, well, I don't actually know what I'm going to do <laughs> yet until it's done. And then the second problem is, in both of those cases, I could see that the story made complete sense. And yet <laughs> it was also totally full of shit, full of shit in a certain way. It's like post hoc reasoning. You know, it's like you come up with the reasons after the thing's done. Mm -hmm. So I just like before I share my reasons, it's like I sort of also don't completely believe mm -hmm. them. But one of the reasons <laughs> that said, one of the reasons we wanted to move it was just it's really around wanting to live more simply wanting to live with more abundance in our lives. Both my wife and I teach meditation. We have a son who's three years old and being independent meditation teachers and podcaster, you know, it's like, I love what I do and I love the work I do. And it, and it's also, I don't do it to make, you know, huge amounts of money. It's not why I'm in it. And so part of what I realize is, you know, in order to really live in alignment with my deeper values, I need to live more simply. Mm -hmm. And places like Asheville and Boulder, you know, they're very expensive places to live. So that's like on the just kind of very basic level. And, and part of my deeper aspiration there, you know, for what it's worth and to, to people listening is like, I'm very interested in what it might be like to continue to reduce the cost of living down toward zero. Because I'm really interested in liberating myself at some point from the capitalist system and to, to, to experiment with different alternative economic models. And I think this is like a long-term project but I'm interested in subtracting myself out. <laughs> and so that was part of this move is part of a larger intention to reduce waste and to live more simply and to, to work on being able to subtract myself out of dependency on, on, the, on the capitalist market-based system. The other reason we are happy we moved, I'll put it that way, is that you know Boulder and Asheville both are very white communities. Um, and I, and there's something great about a bunch of people with incredible opportunities and resources to coming together to explore geeky things together. I think that's great. Uh, in fact, I've benefited so much from it over the last 15 years. And yet there's something to me that's also disconnecting about that, you know, about wanting to be around like-minded people because being around like-minded people also mean, means in certain ways being around less people that aren't like me. And so, you know, here in Winston, you know, the population's maybe half white and maybe a little more than two thirds African American and Hispanic. And this is, you know, this is a city where Maya Angelou, she passed away here and lived a lot of part of her life here. It was a key city in the civil rights movement. It was an important place where a lot of civil rights things were happening. It's still a very deeply segregated community, as many are in the South. So part of our what we're happy about, you know, is being exposed, you know, to different kinds of people here. And really, I'm curious about, you know, 
what it's like to teach meditation and dharma in communities that aren't just you know made up of folks who've had the kind of education and training and opportunities that I have. You know, so that's part of the inquiry, part of the reason we moved. And I'm curious about that. Um, so I think those are some of the main things in terms of retreats, teaching retreats. It doesn't really change anything for us. We teach most of our retreats in the mountains of North Carolina. You know, if someone wants to <laughs> invite us somewhere else, we'd go. But it's beautiful place to to practice. So we will we, we'll continue to do that. Awesome. And you offer those year round, the retreats? Yeah. Emily and I have been doing something like once a year, like a week long retreat. And I, I started this year, a, few, a couple months ago, I started to teach with Kenneth Folk, who I mentioned. Right. And we, we taught a pragmatic Dharma retreat and we're going to do that again next fall. And that was incredibly successful. Oh, the other thing I should mention about retreats, we only, we cap our retreats at 20 people, oh. um, which is very different than the retreats that we've been on. They're, they're a little bit more like, you know, you could say a boutique <laughs> retreat if you like, but really the, the emphasis is on being able to be in relationship with each other instead of having a retreat where there's say like six teachers and a hundred people um, where you, you, you can't really in that environment get to know everyone and hear everyone's voice and build sustainable relationships. So I forgot to mention that. That's another way we do things differently. That's really cool. Well, Vince, you dropped like two huge, interesting bombs <laughs> in your answer at like the end of our yeah, conversation, like alternative to the capitalist model in meditation and social justice. And I'd love to explore both of them, but I know that, you know, we're probably coming up on your time here. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I have a whole lot to say about them totally. at this point. <laughs> so I'm still, still very much, a, you know, just like an open question. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll follow up with you in a year when you figured them out. Yeah. <laughs> would love to talk again. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me as a guest. Really do. Thank you so much, Vince. I really enjoyed this conversation. You are filled with insight and really enjoyed what, hearing what you had to say.